Let me invite you to stand as you hear God's word this morning. We're actually going to be reading um, from Hebrews chapter 6. I made a little bit of a, caught a little bit audible. because We're going to be hitting on this, touching on this a little bit this morning. It meshes well with Ezekiel 16. So let's hear the word of the Lord together. Chapter 6, verse 1 through 13, or 12, excuse me. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go, I'm sorry, yeah, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturing, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works or of faith toward God or of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection from the dead or eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible if in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that thus drink, that has drunk the rain that as often falls on it and produces a crop and useful to those whose sake it has been cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to be cur- being cursed, and, it, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust as to overlook your work and, your, and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And, he, and, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. You might want to keep a thumb in that. You may have to see it, by the way. Uh, you may want to keep a thumb there. We're going to come back to that here in just a little bit. We're actually going to work through the text of Ezekiel 16 this morning. As we go through the sermon, we'll spend a, a portion of time just really trying to uh, you know, read and explain, read and explain. And so you'll, you'll see kind of how we go here in a few moments. You know, over the last decade... We've probably seen a number of high-profile deconversions. You know, you know who they are. You know some of the names probably. For many of us, when this happens, we are kind of caught off guard. Like, that guy, I mean, wasn't he like a faithful preacher? Wasn't he like theologically sound? Wasn't he like one of the main guys who was writing to help encourage the church? And now this guy or this woman now has left the faith and... Uh, and we just wonder, like, how can that happen? How can it happen that someone like that, that caliber of a guy or woman, whoever it may be, is now found themselves divorcing themselves from Christ rather than continuing to press into Christ? I've had the sad misfortune in my life of watching several relatively close friends over the course of the last 25 years abandon their faith. Perhaps you have as well. Perhaps someone comes to mind for you. Three come to mind for me in this moment. And even now, even now, there's like a, a deep heartache that kind of I feel over people that I once walked with, once shared encouragement from the word with and shared fellowship with and had deep, meaningful conversations about the nature of life and salvation and whatnot. And these people no longer claim such things. Now, there are similarities in each of their cases, each of those, these deconversions, and I would imagine you probably see some similarities in the ones that you know of, if you do have anyone in your life of such. And and so you can think of several things, a shift in moral or ethical conviction, like was of a former youth leader that I had worked with in my home church back in Virginia. For another, it was a marriage to an unbeliever that caused my friend to drift over the past decade into all kinds of other things, and now questions his faith. Their deconversions were preceded by slow drift. It wasn't something that happened overnight. It was just something that kind of happened in the midst of just this, you know, different circumstances began to kind of take shape, and then before you knew it, these people were completely alienated from Christ, at least in their own hearts and minds. Their deconversion, as it was, whatever that we are to make of that, was preceded by 
at least one or two things we could probably assume. I can assume by based on what I saw in my friends' lives, but a slow drift into hidden sin, unchecked hidden sin. Uh, two, a season of relative ease and comfort that got challenged by some circumstance in life and then therefore caused some type of, you know, uh, metaphysical, you know, struggle inside of them that made them think, it's God real? Kind of like what Casey was talking about in Psalm 42 this morning. But we find these places like, where are you, God? So some people found themselves in, in those seasons of life, or some just drift away from repentance and faith in their own life, and they just, because they just begin to dumb, dumb down sin either in their lives or in the lives of other people because they just cannot see how painful it is um, to continue, the, 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 I'm sorry, can't see the impact of sin on their own life or the lives of others around them, excuse me. So in each of their cases, or in, in at least the ones that are in my mind, they prized their newfound life or their newfound insights higher than God himself. It, didn't, it seemed harmless at first. But then eventually, a year, two years, five years, ten years, these things begin to creep in and they replace a deep affection for God with these other things. Now look, you and I both know, and, and, and we can sit here and imagine that each one, each deconversion story has its own story, has its own complexities and turns and twists, and, we, and I would say we need to be careful to make unfair characterizations or flimsy anecdotal assessments of people's deconversions as if somehow we know all the things that are going on inside a person's heart, but we can at least say there is a drift. A prolonged drift that was uninterrupted, and it began to redefine right and wrong. It began to redefine what happiness and satisfaction was, or it began to redefine what identity was or is. And we see this all over the place in our world today, do we not? And it's a heartbreaking reality. The abandonment of a close friend, a family member, whoever it may be, is tragic, and it hurts, and it hurts us on a deeply profound level. I know myself, again, I know several people, and again, these three people that come to mind to me, still, it still hurts. It still hurts to see and still hurts to know. You know, because this is such a deep moment, I feel like I need to make a, I make a light moment out of it. It's kind of like raising your child to be a Tennessee fan, right? And then on one day, they just tell you they're taking their talents to Alabama. That's just not right, right? You know? But the reality is, is that we find ourselves in these places constantly, do we not? And we find ourselves wondering whether or not we admit it or not, sometimes ourselves, like, is this me? Will I be the one? Will I be the next one to abandon my faith? I mean, if it can happen to that guy, I mean, they seem so sure in their faith. If it can happen to them, can it happen to me? So here's the main point of the sermon this morning. God's people should be aware of the dangers of sin that leads to apostasy. God's people should be aware of the sins and the slow drift that leads to apostasy. Nonetheless, understand that our assurance is granted for those who rest in the everlasting promises that are established fully in Christ. You see the two sides, right? Like we need to be aware of the things that cause the slow drift, but the way we deal with those things is not do better, try harder, but it's a better rest a deeper rest in the promises of God through Jesus. It's when we begin to entertain other things and adding to the gospel that we begin to then fall into the very sins and deeper into the sins that are causing the drift that will maybe perhaps even lead to deconversion, apostasy. Apostasy is a big fancy word. All of those means is just people who have abandoned the faith. They've walked away. In the larger context that we've been working through the last three weeks counting today, has been 12 through 24, chapters 12 through 24 of Ezekiel. And, and we've been noticing how God's judging Israel for several things, their infatuation for false teaching and false teachers, um, how much that plays a role, by the way, in apostasy itself, um, their lack of concern for justice and perhaps their contribute, contribution to injustice. We saw it last week. And then, of course, this week, um, we're going to be dealing with the ultimate and kind of like the apex of God's judgment, which are those who can abandon the faith altogether. Altogether. Now, one of the things that makes Ezekiel's prophecy so unique, if you were to compare and read it line for line next to us, Isaiah or Jeremiah, it is, it is this. Ezekiel, through God's own providence, through God's own hand, uses 
illustrative figures and images and theatrical visions and allegory in order to bring the full picture of God's work in his people, full picture of God's judgment to bear on the shoulders of his own people so his people might see, his people's heart might be changed. And so in 12 through 24, there are four particular visions here that are allegories because they tell a picture bigger than the moment. They tell us something very deeply theological about who the people of God have become, Israel has become. And so we have in chapter 15 the picture of the useless stick or burnt vine. And basically the summation of that is is that these people who want a choice vine, right, people made by God at a fruitful vine are nothing more than a burnt stick and they're useless. They're even useless in a fire. So this is part of their apostasy. Then in chapter 16, which is what we're going to focus on today, is the unfaithful wife, the unfaithful spouse, who who gives and sells her heritage to another. And that's, by the way, being incredibly mild when I describe that, because when we get into it, you're going to see why I'm saying it that way. And then you've got chapter 19, the picture of the caged lion. Again, another picture of Israel who's been caged in this snare of sin. And because that snare of sin has caught them so deeply, they have... They, have, they are, have begun to abandon and put their hope and trust in other things. And in chapter 23, which is like the apex of it all, is the two promiscuous sisters, which, by the way, is the most frank of all the chapters in Ezekiel. Chapter 16 and chapter 23 are the two most vividly graphic chapters there. We're picking 16 this morning, and I'll give you a little disclaimer on that here in just a moment. So we have these four allegorical images in chapters 12 through 24. I trust that you'll read those on your own for your own edification and for your own, for God to use in your life in some capacity. But these truths, these allegorical images that arise here of this useless stick, for instance, and the cage lion, they're kind of closely linked. And they're pictures of the snare of sin, right? I already said it before, that Israel's caught in and with their idolatry, rendering them useless and fruitless. Then you've got the unfaithful wife and two promiscuous sisters who are also closely linked as another side of this apostasy that's going on in Israel because of what ensues from their sin and idolatry, their complete abandonment of God. And so today what I intend to do is that we're going to center in on chapter 16 alone and trust, again, you will, for the balance of these things I've mentioned for your own reflection. Why? Because I think 16 gets to the most comprehensive Picture when you put all those things together, we can pull the most comprehensive picture out of chapter 16 and be gripped by the truth of or the danger of an apostate heart. So, what we're going to do for the next few minutes is we're going to just put our nose in the book and we're going to read through it chunk by chunk, and I'm going to make some explanations across the way. We're going to spend a, a good amount of our time here because I just want to make sure you know what's happening. I want you to do it. There, there should be on the screen behind us. It's going to be in the ESV version if you have that. If you don't, there should be a paperback under your, um, which of course you read along in your own versions. It's, it's fine. Um, but if you wanted to break down this chapter into, four, into three chunks, you could find out that verses 1 through 14 deal with the past. All that God has done to raise Israel to this glorious present, that glorious place of where the kingdom was at its, at its apex. And then 15 through 34 is the present, their abandonment of their heritage. And then the remainder, 35 through 63, is God, their future what God intends to do as, in a result, as a result of that. Now, I kind of alluded to it. I just want to go ahead and put it out here very clearly. We're going to read some things in here that might, might touch on some sensitive places. We're going to use language we're going to see in this passage that are not, is not the most... Um, uh, you know, for us, we might not use in common language. And, and, there, and, and to be honest with you, it's one of the reasons why I chose over to the ESV versus the CSB. The CSB is way more frank. And, and there's just no way, and I hate to say this, there's no way a teenager gets through that reading of that. We're going to be using words like prostitute, whore, whoring. And I just wanted to say this from the very beginning, and I'm, I'm saying this for, your, for, for all of our good, but particularly for our young people. Lock in. It's easy to, to kind of snide at this. It's easy to kind of look at this and go, <laughs> funny. It's not funny. It's not funny. Because the picture of this sexual de- um, uh, uh, of deprecation in Israel is a picture of their hatred for God. 
and we need to be careful with it. So if you're the one who's going to cause distraction, go sit with your parents right now. Not because I don't love you and because I don't think you can handle it. I'm preaching this because I think you can handle it if you will all grow up and, and take and receive what God has to us. If God gave us a message to his, what, what would happen if Zeke said, Lord, it's a little too offensive. These people can't handle this. And what if every pastor throughout the ages said the same thing? And we said, oh, but God gave us this word. So I say that not out of condemnation, but out of seriousness of heart to all of us, out of a concern for us to receive what God has for us here, okay? All right, let's go to verse 1, 1 through 7. Let's pick up in there, and we'll make a couple comments as we go. Here we go. This is the word. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations, and say, thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, your origin and your birth are to the, of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite. Your mother was a Hittite. In other words, you were not of God. You were a people born outside of God. We'll talk more about that here in a second. Verse um, 4. And as for your birth, on the day that you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were, your, nor were you washed and water to, uh, washed with water to cleanse you. In other words, you know, when, you, when after the birth canal, you're, there's the unbendable cord. Like you're just kind of thrown out. Nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped with swaddling clothes. No, I pitied you to do any of these things to you. Um, to, to, um, no, I pitied you to do any of these things for you out of compassion for you. But you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day of your, uh, that you were born. And when I passed by, I saw you wallowing in your blood. I said to you in your blood, "Live." What happens to a child just thrown out into the field? Is that child going to live? No, they're helpless. God says, he comes along and says, you live. I said to you in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant in the field. And you grew up and became a tall, became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. The background here, of course, is the communication of the fact that mankind's born in sin. All because of everything that happened in the garden, mankind was born in sin. And so to be, say you're born of uh, an Amorite and a Hittite is just an indication that you're born far from God. You are destined for death. It's the whole idea that if you don't obey and live in, in, in Genesis, you will surely die. And God says that is true. You might be born, you might have blood coursing through your veins, but you are going to die without God. This is the picture. It's a very vivid picture. But God found them, and he gave them life. He caused them to flourish like a plant in the field. Like God did this himself. Nothing special in Israel themselves, but God did this himself. God chose to do this for this people, who otherwise would have been as good as dead. And he did more in verse 8. When I passed by you... Again, you and saw you. Behold, you were at the age of, for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into the covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. It's a picture of marriage here. God chose Israel to be his people, to be his bride, just like the church is Christ's bride. It's the metaphor that runs throughout the entire scriptures of covenant Commitment, faithfulness and covenant commitment. Not our covenant faithfulness, God's covenant faithfulness. And so now in the covenant with them, they're now married to him. He's now married to them. Verse 9, Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil, and I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and, and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and, co- and covered you with silk I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen and silk of embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty and your renown went forth from among the nations because of your beauty. Why? For it was perfect through the splendor that I bestowed on you. Israel wasn't beautiful because Israel was beautiful. They were beautiful because God bestowed this beauty on them. That's what he does for his church, declares the Lord God. So God blesses Israel. She became his beautiful and renowned, the most beautiful bride among all the nations. And in verses 13 and 14 seem to indicate that they had hit their apex, 
you know, David and Solomon, the greatest part of, the, of the Israel's um, history, their kingdom under David. You know, we saw the kingdom get established, and Solomon began to advance that, and it would become just, it was just a beautiful place and a beautiful people, even so much that other nations would come to have counsel with them, like Queen of Sheba, and so on and so forth. But then Solomon got confused about marriage and all kinds of other things. And we see this in, in Ecclesiastes where he began to seek out knowledge and purpose and meaning through all kinds of other things. Go read it yourself. It is there we see the journey of Solomon that eventually, I think, ultimately led him back to Christ because I think the chapter 12 is about him coming back to Christ. It doesn't even matter to know God and to fear him. He sought every possible pathway out even, to the, even at the expense of the kingdom that he was leading that would, would crumble under him, after him. And he got confused by all this wandering. Just like many of us do, we go down all these different paths, looking for meaning and purpose, only to find that they all come up wanting. So in verse 15, the effect of that, here's the big warning. This is where it gets dark. This is where all the words come in. Be prepared. But you trusted in your beauty. Huh. Who should they have been trusting in? God, who bestowed them on their beauty. You played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on your any passerby. Your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines and on them played the whore. The like has never seen or nor ever shall be seen. You also took your beautiful jewels of my, of my gold and my silver, which I had given you, and made for yourself images of men with which you played the whore. You took your embroidered garments to cover them. You set my oil and my incense before them. Also, your, my bread that I gave you, you fed, I fed you with fine flour and oil and honey. You set before them for a pleasing aroma, and so it was, declares the Lord God. And you took your sons and your daughters. If you want a good modern narrative of what we're seeing, okay? Just pay attention. And you set your sons and your daughters, whom you, whom you had borne to me, these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your whoring so small a matter that you slaughtered my children to deliver them up as an offering by fire to them? And in all of your abominations and your whorings, you did not remember the day of your youth when you were naked, bare, wallowing in your blood. <clears throat> Takes them right back to where they started. You never remember the, the, the grace that you had received by being rescued from your death. It's disturbing images, sexual pictures here that just show the depth and the vulgarity of Israel's idolatry and now their perverse apostasy where they're worshiping false gods. It's not unlike today, is it? We do the same thing. Every generation recreates the same story since the garden. Sitting in a cigar shop the other day, I had a guy who challenged me on my faith. He was pushing, pushing, pushing back on me. You know, about the, religion, the, the ridiculousness of religion and how religion's part of the problem. And religion contributes to the, the dark room meetings and the people behind the scenes who are pulling all the strings, and all religion does is continue to give power to the people. You know, it's, it's the, you know that kind of weird stuff, right? And, I, and he's very fearful about our world and our country and just all the things that need to change. And so at the end of the day, he's like, how do you stand on any objective truth? And I said, well, how do you live? You're the one in here concerned about all the things in the world, so where do you start? See what I'm saying, guys? It, it, everything has its cycle. Verse 23, and after all your wickedness, woe to you, woe to you, declares the Lord. You built yourself a vaulted chamber and made yourself a lofty place in every square. So they built a bedroom in the, in the city square. That's the picture here. At the head of every street, you built your lofty place and you made your beauty an abomination, offering yourself to any passerby and multiplying your whoring. In other words, made it visible as a visible could see. The whole world could see what you're doing. The whole world could see you abandoning your God. To provoke me to anger, it says, and behold, therefore, I stretched out my hand against you and diminished your allotted portion and delivered you to the greed of your enemies, the daughters of the Philistines, who, by the way, were ashamed of your lewd behavior. You played the whore also with the Assyrians because you were not satisfied with, apparently, the Philistines. And yes, you played your, the whore with them, and still you were not satisfied. You multiplied your whoring also with the trading land of Chaldea because you were not yet even then satisfied. Israel was married to God, 
but sought comfort and satisfaction and safety, not in him, but in Egypt, Assyria, Babylon. Is this not what we do today? Is this not what mankind continues to do over and over, recycling ourselves through the same pattern? Verse 34 30 and 34 through 34. How sick is your heart, declares the Lord, because you did all these things and the deeds, the deeds of a brazen prostitute. So you weren't, just, you weren't just sexually promiscuous. You were now venturing into prostitution, building your vaulted chamber at the head of every street and making your lofty place in every square. Yet you were not like a prostitute because you scorned payment. Adulterous wife, you received strangers instead of your husband. Men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you gave your gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you. In other words, you weren't taking payment. You were giving payment so that they would participate in all of your idolatry. I know this is hard. You sought gratification and your satisfaction and everything else. You know, you, and you enjoyed it, God says. You enjoined, pervert, you enjoined in perverted worship and idolatry and sought it out. You despised me so much that you'd even pay, God says, people to cheat on me with you. So we have the past. We saw in verses 1 through 14, God had saved them, caused them to flourish, and made a covenant with them, made them royalty, and blessed them. And now we're coming into the end of this present position that they became more than an adult. And they were more than an adulterer. They were more than a serial adulterer. They were more than a prostitute. They were like a reverse prostitute to where they would just, whatever it took, just to, to give themselves fully to anything that was opposed to God. And then we turn to the future in verse 35. 43. Therefore, O prostitute, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, because your lust was poured out and your nakedness uncovered in your whorings for your lovers and with all your abominable idols and because of the blood of your children that you gave to them. Therefore, behold, I will gather all the lovers with whom you took pleasure, all those who lo- you loved and all those you hated, and I will gather them against you from every side and will uncover your nakedness to them and they will see all your nakedness and I will judge you as women who committed adultery and shed blood as ju- are judged and bring upon you the blood and wrath of je- and jealousy. I will give you into their hands and you shall throw down your vaulted chamber and break down all your lofty places. They shall strip you and your clothes and make you beautiful jewels and leave you naked and bear. They shall bring up a crowd against you, and they shall stone you and cut you into pieces with all your, your sword, their swords. They shall burn your houses and execute judgments upon you in the sight of, the, of many women. I will make you stop playing the whore. You shall also give payment no more. So I will satisfy my wrath on you, and my jealousy shall depart from you, and I will, I will be calm and no more be angry." Because you have not remembered the days of your youth, but you have enraged me with all these things. But therefore, therefore, behold, I have returned your deeds upon your head, declares the Lord. Have you not committed lewdness in addition to all your abominations? In other words, God's jealous. And because of his jealousy, he's going to allow Jerusalem to completely fall. And we're right at the edge here where the temple is about to be destroyed in this timeline of Ezekiel, which we'll get to in a couple weeks. But he's saying to them, it's all coming down. Tearing it all down. Because none of it means anything. I'm jealous of you. And you have enraged me in my jealousy. Now, J.I. Packer says there's, there's good jealousy and bad jealousy. Bad jealousy, of course, is wanting someone else, what, what someone else has and hating them because, they, because you don't have it. That's not the jealousy of God. Good jealousy is a zeal to protect and love a relationship or someone or to revenge it when it's broken. That's good jealousy. God's avenging what has went wrong in his jealousy. And this is the jelly which God loves his people, not because of their actions. Perhaps God should no longer be jealous of them, but they, they don't even care at this point. But God says, okay, fine. Matter of fact, they'll make Sodom and, Sodom and Gomorrah and Samaria, they'll make him look tame. I'm going to stop right here for now because verses 44 through 58 just deals with the fact that God raises up Samaria and raises up um, Gomorrah. And he puts them side by side and he says, man, you, those folks look like Puritans compared to you. That's just a summary of it all. They, I mean, they look like, I mean, it, it, like, you have no idea how far you have drifted. But even in 53 through 58, he still says, I'm going to restore your fortunes. I'm even going to restore the fortunes of Samaria and so restore the fortunes of, 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 of Sodom. And I'm going to restore your fortunes. It's going to come through a lot of pain. 
I'm still going to restore your fortunes. So this is what's going to happen. Even after the Jerusalem is destroyed, of course, they'll go back. And they'll rebuild the second temple. They'll rebuild Jerusalem. That's not the main point, as we've already noted. But God still will be with his people. And we're going to talk about that last portion of chapter 16 here near the end. Here's what I want to do for the remainder of my time after hearing that. And I, and I, and I, and I get through that because it's, it's hard and deep and, and harsh stuff to hear. But I do believe God gives us his word because it's good for us. And we don't have the privilege to just skirt the hard things in Scripture. So what I want to do is I want to look at apostasy under three different headings. The nature of apostasy, the pathway that leads down to apostasy, and the assurance we have that prevents apostasy. Okay? Those are the three things we're going to do for the remainder of our time. I'm actually going to work through these points pretty quickly because I wanted to spend more time in the actual text with you this morning. Let's look first at the nature of apostasy. After hearing everything we have read in chapter 16, we need to understand what apostasy is. Apostasy is the revealing of those who are not truly God's people. It's the simplest definition I can give you. They're not people who are truly God's people, and then all of a sudden they fell away. These are people who were part of the visible people of God, visible Israel, perhaps even today we might say the visible church, but they're not truly regenerate in any shape or form. And that's why we go to Hebrews 6, 1 through 8, or 1 through 12, to kind of help us set the whole picture here. We read it a few moments ago, and I'm just going to try to take us through this you know, rather rapidly. It says, therefore, let us leave the elementary, verse 1, elementary doctrine of Christ, and go on to maturity, not laying, again, a foundation of repentance from dead works or faith towards God, and of instruction about washings and laying hands on hands and resurrection from the dead and eternal judgment. In other words, what's happening here is that in verses 1 through 3, those who, it's going to talk about here in a second, those who apostatize, in fact, let me just read on through. I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. And this, will, this, will, this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, and who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt for the land that, was, that has drunk rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful for those whose sake it has been cultivated, receive a blessing from God, but if it bears thorns and thistles... It is worthless. So this is people who have, in some sense, would say identify as the people of God. Whether they're legitimately the people of God, it's, we can say probably they're not the people of God. They are people, people who apostatize or those who perhaps, as we see in the first part of Hebrews chapter 6, they tinker with the gospel. It's always, listen to me, the falling away from Christian faith always comes when we tinker with the gospel. And he's saying here, we need to grow up in our faith. We need to grow up in the gospel. And if we keep on tinkering with all these little ideas of laying on of hands and, 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 and all these other things that we do or laying hold of our faith through, um, uh, through, through repentance of, from dead works and, and faith towards God. In other words, what he's saying there is we live always trying to find out if we can find a new way to relate to God. And God says, you don't need to find another way to relate to me. I've given you the way to relate to me, and that's through my son Jesus, and he's enough for you. And so apostasy always begins, according to chapter, I think here from Hebrews 6, again, trying to fly over this pretty high right now, it always begins when we begin to tinker with our hope in the gospel, and we continue to do it constantly. We don't grow up in our confidence in the person and work of Christ. We get caught up in every other issue. Again, laying on of hands and new foundations for repentance from dead works and all kinds of other formulations of being a Christ follower. We get caught up in the minutia of ritual washings and resurrections from the dead and eternal judgment. In other words, what's life like after death and you know, what's, life, what's hell like? But if we don't stay preeminently focused, this is what it means to grow up as a Christian, preeminently focused on Christ, preeminently uh, uh, satisfied in his accomplishments, we will then be dulled by them. We will go droll in our faith and we will ultimately get entangled with all kinds of other things. Good things sometimes. Good things that get unhinged from Jesus that end up being 
manipulated vices in our lives. Apostasy always begins with tinkering with the gospel. Always. The key understanding that we want to take away when we start thinking about apostasy and why Israel left the faith and why God's judging them in 16 is because they had forgotten where God rescued them from. And the blood that was smeared over them in that field where God said, live. When we tinker with the gospel, we're forgetting that it's God who calls his life, not us. The key understanding of apostasy is not seeing and savoring Jesus. Church, we can, again, I say this often because I just feel like it's so relevant to where we are today. We have too many Christians enamored with everything out there about how we're to deal with the big baddies out there, and we're not enough focused on Jesus and savoring him. He's the only hope you have. He's the only hope I have. And then you get into verse 4 through 6. The writer then comes in and says, because you tinker with the gospel, because you've tasted of the gospel message, you're, and yet you fall away, right? You begin resting in everything else except for the finished and final work of Christ. What you're doing is you're re-crucifying Jesus every time in order to try to earn your own works-based righteousness with God. And this will never do, and God will never be satisfied with your works. God will never be satisfied with your righteousness. We talked about it in Sunday school. Justin did a fantastic job leading us through this this morning. Our works are not enough. Our works are not part of the formula in terms of salvation is concerned. Our works roll out of the formula of salvation. They don't run into the formula of salvation. Does that make sense? We don't start with this and then meet Jesus and then we add a little bit to it and all of a sudden we're saved. No, we meet Jesus, we get radically saved, we, rec- we recognize how deeply sinful we are and how, how useless our righteousness is, and then God begins to do the work inside of us to reform us and become new people, and when he becomes the workmanship of God, like it says in, in, in Ephesians chapter 2, and he says, then you are then born to good works. The point of apostasy is Israel had forgotten that God saves. And this is always the starting point of apostasy. And there's a sad reality to those who've tasted of the gospel. It's impossible, according to Hebrews 6, to renew ourselves to repentance once again. It's a possibility that you will never, ever hear the gospel again. It's a possibility that you will never be sensitive and able to receive the good news ever Again, you should never take for granted being in a space where you can receive the gospel and never take for granted hearing the word of God. Never take for granted gathering with God's people and being nurtured through that. Never take that for granted. Again, I speak to my teenagers here. Don't take this for granted. There is an insidious reality that lies beyond these doors. And it's not about being scared of that reality. It's not about me trying to fear tactic you. But I'm just saying you you have been given the grace to come to church with family who says this is priority and you have an opportunity to hear, listen, receive, trust, follow. Why? Because if you take it for granted, there will be a day you may never walk back through those doors again. I was a youth pastor for nearly 20 years. I, I, I have been a youth pastor over hundreds if not thousands of youth in my 20 years. You wonder how many of those people are still following Jesus today? A fraction of them. Because they took it for granted. Mom and dad, maybe you take it for granted. We need to be careful with this, right? Ultimately, our lives were produced, as it says, they're thorns and thistles, only to be burned up in the end. And you know, we got lots of other New Testament passages that back this up, right? Mark chapter uh, 4, 1 through 20, and the, the different soils that the seed gets thrown onto. I won't go through it right now, but you know what I'm talking about. And there are people who apparently look like they're Christians, but then something rises up in the thorns of the life and just strangle out your faith. This is what it's talking about. 
Matthew 7, 21 through 23, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of the, my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy in your name or cast out demons in your name or do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What is a worker of lawlessness? Someone who takes their own law and tries to relate to God through it. And God says, no, you relate to me through Jesus. They didn't know Jesus. They thought they were doing good things for God and through Jesus and for Jesus. Or Matthew 25, 31 through 33, about the, the, the sheep and the goats. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, all the angels and with him, that he will sit in his glorious throne, and before him he will gather all the nations, and he will separate the people from one another as a sheep separates the sheep from the goats. That's going to happen. So we don't really know. You and I are not sure when someone, it's not our job to know who apostatizes from the faith or who, uh, like we can look at someone and say, hey, they, they seem to have deconverted. We don't know for sure if that's God's plan or not, but, and we still preach the gospel to them. We hope that they'll return to the gospel. So we don't really know at the end until Jesus' judgment whether or not these people will actually be saved or not saved. But what we do know is that we can start telling the fruit as much as we can, and we need to take this seriously. This body needs to take seriously with one another the responsibility of cultivating faith into our hearts and minds. That's what a church does. 1 John 2, 18 through 19. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us. They were not of us, for, it was, for if they had been of us, they would, not have continued, they would have continued with us. They went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. So you've got many different examples. We've talked about deconstruction, right? Being raised perhaps in a church and maybe thinking you're a Christian and then never taking hold of that in your own young adult years. What are we to do with this? Moms, how are we to, mom and dads, how are we supposed to do with this when our kids make professions of faith, when they're children and they're adults, their lives don't look like that? We pray for them. We love them. We still have them in our homes and we still we, we, we remain committed to them. We might suffer because of that reality, but we do it anyway. There's also cultural Christianity. Cultural Christianity is a dangerous thing. That's why I'm opposed to a Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism equals Christian nominalism. It always has and it always will. It deflates what the gospel's all about. It deflates what the gospel's all about. Cultural Christianity serves the external commitments, but has no true moral center to it. It makes false converts out of people who are legislated into being faithful. That is not faith. And that is not actually helping the church evangelize the world. It just doesn't work that way. So then what's the pathway to apostasy? Well, I see two big issues. This is my second point. There seems to be this kind of, and I mentioned it earlier in my introduction, there seems to be this kind of easy, undiscerning, slow drift, slow fade into apostasy. As Ezekiel notes, there, are, there was this gradual and slow fade that began to take shape with Solomon, his reign, and eventually led into the divided kingdom and all the impact of that, right? Like, it didn't happen overnight. Like, everything that led up to Babylon's, you know, conquering of Israel was set in stage way back with Solomon. Uh, way back in David. Because remember what David said? You remember what God said to David because of his unfaithfulness? This kingdom, I'll preserve it through you and through your son, but I, after that it's done. So what we see is that these things are slow drift realities. It happens in small and often un, seemingly insignificant events that go through our lives and we don't think that they actually have a huge impact in our life. The slow fade of giving over our hearts to unholy and, and finite affections. Consider the conditioning that we put ourselves under each and every day. and The various forms of media that condition our hearts and minds to different things. The relationships that we're in and how they condition us. Consider what it takes to steer an aircraft carrier. You can't change the direction of an aircraft carrier in 10 minutes. It takes a long time. And this is how Satan works. He one degree after one degree after one degree after one degree. And before we know it, 
We're locked in. We're in. But there's another factor to this pathway of apostasy, and, it's, and, it's, and this is the most important part for us. This is the one I really hope that you'll just resonate with all of us. The quickest way you start to see the slow drift is the pulling away of people from God, of God from the church. And the, 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 the drifting away of people from the, the, to neglect their marital covenant with the bridegroom Jesus. You want to put it that way. When there's a slow drift, our hearts get dull, and we neglect the marriage we have in Christ. This is exactly what Ezekiel is talking about. Neglecting the marriage we have with God. Right? It's, we don't bask in the glory and the goodness of Christ any longer. It's there, and maybe in some small ways, but it's not the preeminent thing in my life. We don't rest in His Word to us in the Scriptures. We, don't, we, we can neglect the body of Christ as just another piece of our life. These are not helpful. And so you see those two things. You see the slow drift, but then you start seeing the drift of the people from the church. We should pay attention to that. So then what assurance do we have? I mentioned earlier, like we might get into the place like, well, what assures me that I, won't, that I won't leave the faith? I mean, if that person was so seemingly so situated, like I, I, I'm getting a little scared right now. And so many of us will hear this and they'll think, oh my gosh, I need to start questioning my salvation. And here's what I'm going to tell you right now. No, you do not. Because if you're beginning to question your salvation, you're putting your trust in these intangibles about your life that you think God wants to see in your life and you're doing exactly what you're not supposed to do. Rather, I would argue that we, it's not our job to work for our assurance of salvation, which many people might say we should, but routinely rest in the promises of salvation provided to us in Christ, which gives a way to new and better righteousness. Right? That should be the way we go about this. We, we don't work for our assurance. We actually go into a deeper rest in who Christ is. And that's exactly what we will see here in Ezekiel 16, 59 through 63. Let me turn back over there real quick. You can join me there. Just a few verses. For thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have, been, as you have done. You have despised the oath in breaking the covenant. So in other words, I'm going to deal with you honestly. You have broken faith with me. You have broken covenant with me. But look at verse 60. Yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth. And I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. Then you will remember your ways and you will be ashamed when you take your sisters both from your elder and your younger and give them to you as daughters, but not on account of the covenant with you. I will establish my covenant with you and you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame when I atone for you for all that you have done, declares the Lord. So what's happening here? Again, God's taking the whole burden of the covenant onto himself. You're lawbreakers. I will fulfill the law on your behalf. That's why Jesus is the preeminent second Adam. He bears the, the, the whole penalty of the law for us. It's, but, he bear, but he's also the one who gives a perfect life for us so that we have the full, the full gift of grace. He's also the one who goes and accomplishes the new kingdom that is coming. It's not the church's job to usher that kingdom in. It's the church's job to wait and trust and declare Jesus and point to Jesus because he's the one who's going to build the kingdom. It's not us. It's not us. So in other words, their righteousness was not the means of covenant renewal. Rather, God's commitment to his own covenant promises was the key. Always will be. Same idea is noted in Hebrews chapter 6 again, verses 9 through 13. And though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. In other words, you hear about all these people who are walking away from the faith, but we, we feel sure that salvation belongs to you. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have full assurance of hope until the end. Hope in what? God's covenant promises, so that you may not be sluggish, 
that you may be imitators of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. I love that last part. So that you may be imitators of those through faith and patience inherit the covenant promises. It just seems to me that at this moment, it's just time for us to come to the table. I don't know of any other better way to land the plane this morning from a sermon like this than for us to rest in Christ together at the table. The people of God have two tasks, word and sacrament. That is our task in this world until Jesus returns. Word and sacrament. Word, preach the declared truth of the gospel everywhere we go. Sacrament, be included as the people of God at the table and through baptism. We're going to baptize in a couple weeks, by the way. It's going to be pretty exciting. Some of you guys know what's happening. Can I go ahead and say this? You okay if I say this? I'm going to call you out. Our brother Roger got saved a few weeks ago. And... uh, It's an absolutely phenomenal story to hear what God's been doing in his life, and I can't wait for it to stand here and share more with you. Why do we need anything other than the preached word and the sacraments to do our work in the world? Why do we always have to have something else to deal with the big baddies out there? We don't, and we're fooling ourselves if we think we do. Word and sacrament. Preach the gospel. Enjoy the ordinances God has given us. Trust Jesus until then. Live as good citizens. Show up at the polls on Tuesday. Whatever it is, stand before the Lord in your own conscience of what God calls you to do and leave the rest to Jesus. He's building the kingdom. Not you. Not me. God, help us as we come to the table this morning and we think about... The, the, the depth and the richness of what we are about to participate in as your people, being reminded from your word that what binds us to you, Jesus, is not our faithfulness, but your faithfulness to us. And by virtue of that, we stand and we come and receive this word. We, we receive these elements this morning, not out of rote tradition, but as participation as the body of Christ who love you, Not because we have done something good for you, but because you've loved us. And we desire to stand in that and rest in that until you return. So help us now as we come to this time. In Christ's name, amen.